Do you like free stuff? I do. BlueprintMCAT.com. Go sign up for a free account. Get access to Blueprint MCAT's Diagnostic, Blueprint MCAT's Full Length One, Blueprint MCAT's amazing brand new space repetition platform with over 1,600 flashcards already made for you, as well as their amazing study planner tool. Schedule out the content so you know if you are on track to take the MCAT when you need to. Again, that's blueprintmcat.com for all of those free goodies. The MCAT Podcast, session number 121. A collaboration between the medical school headquarters and Blueprint MCAT. The MCAT Podcast is free MCAT prep to help you understand the MCAT, teach you how to break down questions, and give you the skills and confidence to get the score you want on your MCAT test day. Learn more about Blueprint MCAT at blueprintprep.com slash MCAT. Welcome to the MCAT Podcast, a weekly podcast here helping you get the best score possible for you. We cover everything related to the MCAT, and I do that with Next Step Test Prep. My name is Dr. Ryan Gray, your host here every week, as well as many other podcasts on the MedEd Media Network. That's M-E-D-E-D-Media.com. Our biggest podcast, our most popular one, is called The Pre-Med Years, and I cover everything pre-med related including what to do after the MCAT, right? After you take the MCAT, you're not done. You have to apply. You have to write your personal statement. You have to prepare for interviews. We cover all of that in the pre-med years. Go check it out, premedyears.com. This week, we are continuing our breakdown of Next Step Test Prep Full Length 10, diving into bio, Biochem Passage 3. Claire, are you back I'm back and I am excited. Okay. We're going to do a really fun passage. Okay. I just, I, I'm still a little bit sad that Brian's gone. And so I just want to make sure that you're still here with us. <laughs> <laughs> I am. I'm sad about Brian too, but, <laughs> but I'm excited that I can be part of this. Yes. It's highlight of my week. Good, good. So we're back with some more amino acid, I mean, bio, biochem uh, work <laughs> here on Next Up Full Length 10. Again, just got to know those amino acids. Um, so what, uh, what kind of information do we need for passage three? Yeah, this is going to be a really good example of a passage that looks really dense, right? So this is the kind of passage that really strikes fear into the hearts of some pre-meds. Uh, but we actually don't need a whole lot of background information here. So this is going to be talking about a lot of processes, a lot of pathways and things like that. We just need to pay attention, and then when we tackle the questions, we make sure that we use the passage. But this it was one's about protein cascades and um, secretory protein passage um, processing. That doesn't sound exciting. <laughs> well, to some people it might be. Okay. All right, There's... go ahead. All right. Passage three. Changes in the extracellular environment of a cell can adversely affect the homeostasis of the endoplasmic reticulum, ER, disrupting the folding and processing of secretory pathway proteins. The resulting accumulation of unfolded proteins in the ER increases the demand for molecular chaperones and folding enzymes and activates a signal transduction cascade known as the unfolded protein response, UPR. This signal transduction pathway is largely cytoprotective, 
serving to decrease the detrimental effects of accumulated unfolded proteins by decreasing overall protein synthesis and increasing the capacity of the cell to eliminate unfolded proteins. In mammalian cells, the UPR is controlled in part by IRE1, a protein that senses ER stress and activates signals to downstream elements. IRE1 is an ER transmembrane protein that has a kinase and endoribonuclease domain in its cytosolic tail. When the ER is stressed, IRE1 is phosphorylated, which in turn activates its endonuclease domain, leading to the excision of 26 bases from the Xbox binding protein, XB1, transcript. The resulting frame shift encodes a transcription factor that upregulates the expression of proteins that contribute to the folding or degradation of unfolded or misfolded proteins. Um, So just to stop halfway through real quick, this might sound, seem really dense to you at first, but you should be <laughs> highlighting highlighting as you go so it doesn't just look like a wall of text. Okay. So Because that's what it looks like right now. <laughs> it does. It's, it's a little bit much. But we see a lot of familiar stuff, right? So Xbox. if you highlight words, yeah, Xbox, <laughs> that's not familiar in a, <laughs> a helpful way, but um, if you highlight frame shift you. maybe or something, <laughs> yeah, maybe it'll come up. Um, all right, moving on. Angiogenesis refers to the sprouting, migration, and remodeling of blood vessels and plays an important role in both normal and pathological physiological processes. In cancer cells, proangiogenic factors such as vascular endothelial growth factor, VEGFA, angiogenin, and interleukin-8, IL-8, are released in response to decreased oxygen and nutrient supplies. A cellular stress pathway termed the hypoxia-inducible factor, HIF pathway, has been shown to promote the upregulation of proangiogenic factors in response to inadequate oxygen delivery. Recently, UPR activity has also been associated with abnormal levels of these factors. Researchers wish to assess the relationship between the UPR and the induction of proangiogenic factors. Cells from a human medulloblastoma cell line were treated with three known UPR inducers, tunicomycin, thapsigargan, and no-glucose, and with two different inducers of the HIF pathway, COCL2 and 1% oxygen, for 24 hours, and the induction of VGFA, angiogenin, and IL-8 was measured. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, okay, let's have fun with this one. (laughs) All right, want to try reading 10? Yeah... I'm still processing the passage. Uh, that 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 one hurts my brain. Uh, I wrote we'll this one, so <laughs> oh, so we'll we have you to blame. Uh, question ten: The experimenters conclude that UPR activation significantly increases the level of VEGFA angiogenin and IL-8 transcription. What additional finding would most undermine this? conclusion so this conclusion meaning that upr activation significantly increases those three things i'm assuming that's what it's asking um all right so a angiogenin transcript levels were increased significantly more by hypoxic conditions than by treatment with thapsigargan or no glucose media b both Tunicomycin and thapsigargan treatment resulted in significantly higher levels of IL-8 than exposure to no glucose conditions. C cells treated with 
Tunica mycin thapsagargan and no glucose conditions were forced were were found to contain lower levels of unfolded proteins than untreated NT cells. D in addition to being potent UPR inducers, tunica mycin thapsagargan and no glucose conditions also act to induce the HIF pathway. Wow. Um so I have to figure out what the question is asking me first. So experimenters conclude that UPR activation significantly increases the levels of uh, VEGFA, angiogenin, and IL-8 transcription. And what additional finding would most undermine this conclusion? I'm still, I, I still don't understand what the question is asking me. Undermine this conclusion, meaning yeah. the experimenters conclude. Yes, so it's like one sentence, it's telling me it's concluding it. And then the, uh, yeah, okay. It's just a so, con- confusing yeah, question. Yes. So the way, um, a lot of a lot of times questions about experiments will be phrased this way, and basically what they're saying is the experimenters came to this conclusion, but what additional findings, so what like finding in addition to what's in the passage, uh, would most undermine this conclusion? So which of these answer choices will, if we if we found this out in addition to what we know now, will undermine what the first sentence of the question says? Okay. So the first sentence of the question, so UPR activation increasing VEGFA, angiogenin, and IL-8. So what will decrease, I'm assuming, uh, those things? Um, or, is, is that a or different way to read it? What will tell, so decrease might be helpful. Um, what, so if we found out that UPR activation decreased these things, then yeah, that would be great. Um, now, alternatively, maybe we find out that they increase, but like it's not UPR activation that caused it. Okay. So that's a, another. So we can undermine it a few different ways. Okay. For me, like the, if I were actually taking the test, I think there's just so much going on with this passage in this question that I would answer C and move on. Um, be, I, because I know myself and I would spend way too much time, like, what is thapsagargan? What is what is tunica mycin? What and and just going back and trying to remember all of those different things that I would just move on because I don't want to waste my time. I think that's a great approach. Uh, actually, uh, other, apart from the fact that uh, I do recommend also flagging the questions. The flagging is like the new name for marking a question, so you can flag it so that then if you have like ten minutes left at the end, you can come back to it. Okay. But, but yeah, this is just dense. There are just going to be a few questions every test that just feel like they're going to take too long, and you might as well save your time for the easy points. Okay. Um, so, but we can talk through it in this yeah. case because, yeah, because there are certain little keywords and key phrases here that can make it a lot faster for us. So for we'll you. just go through. <laughs> for yeah. you. It makes it faster <laughs> for, for you. And for the MCAT student who knows these oh, tricks, which, okay, which they learn, you'll learn by listening to the podcast. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, so let's see. So what are we trying to figure out here? We're trying to figure out which of these will undermine this idea that UPR activation increase these things, right? Like VGFA, like we don't care, but UPR activation increase these things. We're trying to prove that that's not true, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um. 
So if we look at the answer choices, uh, A is talking about uh, difference between hypoxic conditions and thapsic argon or no glucose media. And if we just really quickly go back to those, we see, okay, um, hypoxic conditions that um, they mentioned oxygen, 1% oxygen in the last paragraph. So that's like low oxygen is what hypoxia means. Mm-hmm. So this is comparing, oh, hypoxic conditions increase angiogenin more than thapsic argon or no glucose. But this is sort of, so this is sort of comparing two unlike things because hypoxic conditions, they said were part of this HIF pathway. And thapsigargan is part of this UPR pathway. So there's these two different pathways. We have to figure out how they relate to each other. And if you just, and this will really pay off, I promise. (laughs) (laughs) So if you go back to the um, paragraph before that, you see that the HIF pathway uh, is something they say it's also been shown. So the cellular stress pathway termed the HIF pathway has been shown to upregulate proangiogenic factors. Uh, so all these factors we're talking about are proangiogenic factors. That's like BGFA, angiogenin, et cetera. So essentially what it's saying is that the, the um, UPR is what we're actually studying in this, path, in this passage, like that uh, unfolded protein pathway. But the HIF pathway is another pathway that also does the same thing or does the same thing as what we suspect the UPR pathway does. So... If we think of it that way, okay, they're saying, okay, these angiogenin levels were increased more by this part of the HIF pathway than they were by the UPR pathway. We can't really say that tells us anything because we didn't, the HIF pathway wasn't the focus of this passage, right? It never said like, oh, this HIF pathway doesn't, doesn't affect it as much as the UPR pathway. So we'll just leave that one. That's a long way of saying we'll leave that one. <laughs> <laughs> Um, B is talking about both tunicomycin, thapsigargan result in higher levels of IL-8 than no glucose. Like B already starts to look the same as A or similar to A because B is just saying, oh, these two treatments out of all the treatments we're using um, cause these higher levels than this other treatment. So I would leave B also. And then C says cells treated with these UPR treatments are found to contain lower levels of unfolded proteins. And that doesn't make sense because UPR is the, um, or actually, you know what, that makes perfect sense because the UPR is the unfolded protein response. And this unfolded protein response is meant to basically save our cells from unfolded proteins. So if cells treated with all these things um, that are part of the UPR were found to contain lower levels of unfolded proteins, that makes total sense. But that doesn't undermine the conclusion in the question stem Mm. because it's just what we already knew, essentially. And then D says, D is where there's a phrase that should stand out to us right away. And that is the in addition to and then the also act to induce here. Because they're saying, in addition to being potent UPR inducers, this tunicomycin and these other things we're using as treatments also act to induce the HIF pathway. And as soon as we see that these things we're using in our experiment, these treatments, are also do something else, essentially, that is related to this pathway. Um, they also, so they're, they're part of the UPR pathway, which we think does this thing, but they also are part of the HIF pathway, which we think does the same thing. Uh, that's a confounding factor. 
So if these tunicomycin and thapsigargan also act as part of the HIF pathway, maybe it's just the HIF pathway that's doing everything, right? Maybe it's just the HIF pathway that's actually increasing the level of these angiogenic factors, and the UPR pathway doesn't have anything to do with it. There's no way now for us to distinguish between UPR and HIF because the treatment we're using was badly chosen. It does both things at once. So <laughs> I don't know if that makes any sense, but as soon as you see um, something like that where it says, oh, the thing we're actually studying, we can't really prove a causal relationship with it because it actually affects all these other things that could mess up our results. Um, that's a confounding factor, and that's most likely going to undermine our conclusion. Okay. Like I said, <laughs> like, choose C and move on. I think your choosing C option was a good <laughs> one, but but yeah. Wow. Um, yeah, that's that one. That one to me, that uh, yeah, that's a that's a hard one. Yeah. Even well, even with all that explanation, I'm still <laughs> I'm still not sold, and and to go well just look at in addition to and also it's like if you see that I, I don't know <laughs> no I could I could go into this um, but you're right you don't have uh, infinite amount of time on the test so the best option is to move on um, but if you do get a chance to look at this passage later you can really dig into it um, with this HIF versus UPR and and then maybe okay. it's a thinker okay but we can move on yes please um <laughs> <laughs> Question 12. Uh, which of the following statements about IRE1 is least supported by passage information? A, if IRE1 promoted the excision of one additional consecutive base from XBP1, the transcription factor typically produced as a result of this excision would not be encoded. B, a region of the cytosolic tail of IRE1 catalyzes the cleavage of bases one at a time from the end of the XBP1 transcript. C, phosphorylation of IRE1 results in post-transcriptional modification of XBP1. Or D, the endoribonuclease domain of IRE1 is more likely to be rich in K and D residues than in L and F residues. I can promise this one is not as bad, even though <laughs> it's a little dense. Um, yeah, I'm still... So as you were reading the question, I was going back and reminding myself uh, the second paragraph is all about... IRE1. Um, and so I'm, I, I was trying to re remember what was going on there. Um, yeah, I don't know. So if IRE1 promoted the accession of, of one additional consecutive base from XBB1, the transcription factor typically produced as a result of the accession would not be encoded. Um, so it's saying when IRE, the passage is saying when IRE is phosphorylated, it activates uh, endonuclease domain, leading to the excision of 26 bases from the Xbox binding protein. And that frame shift encodes a transcription factor that upregulates the expression of proteins. Uh, um, uh, so it's the result of the excision would not be encoded. So I'm assuming it's saying it would be a stop sequence, but we don't, how would we know that? I don't know if we would know that. Well, this is a least question, remember. So we are looking okay. for which one is least supported. Okay, least supported, okay. So step one, always understand the question. Absolutely. Okay, 
So, okay. So, A, I don't know if that mentions it anywhere in there. Uh, but B, a region of the cytosolic tail uh, of IRE1 catalyzes the cleavage of bases one at a time from the end of XBP1 transcript. And it says, uh, activates that and leading to the excision of 26 bases from the Xbox pri uh, binding protein. Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, one at a time from the end. So, oh man, these are hard. Uh, <laughs> see, phosphorylation of IRE1 results in post-transcriptional modification of XBP1. Um, okay. Post-transcriptional, but it's saying it is ex excising 26 bases from the transcript, not from uh, post-transcriptional. So that's confusing. Post-transcriptional transcripts. I need to make sure I understand what that means. Results in post Okay. And then D, the endoribonucleus domain of IRE1 is more likely to be rich in K and D residues than in L and F residues. So that one doesn't make any sense to me either. So a lot of these don't make sense to me, and so I'm kind of screwed um, because, because it is a least supported by. I would assume the one that made the least sense to me would probably be the one, <laughs> the one that I would want to pick. And so the K and D and L and F, again, amino acids. Uh, I'm assuming those are amino acids. Um, they are. I don't know what that is telling me um, and whether or not that has anything to do with the passage. And so I'd probably pick that just because I don't I don't see anywhere where it's talking about specific amino acids. Um, I don't know. That's I, I don't know. That's, that's a hard one. This one's a lot easier <laughs> if you if you do have the content knowledge. Uh, if you don't have the content knowledge, it might seem like gibberish. <laughs> Do you, uh, do, you, do you want to know what my other answer would have been? I would love to. Um, so the the least supported one would um, uh, uh, where'd it go? Uh, man, least uh, I don't I don't know. C just doesn't make sense to me because it's saying results in post transcriptional modification of XBP1, and it the passage is specifically saying that it's it's modifying oh i don't know the transcripts <laughs> and so it's not post transcriptional ah it is though you're you're really close you're getting you're getting tangled up in that transcript phrasing um but post transcriptional just means that it happens after the after transcription uh so essentially transcription happens that's what makes the transcript any changes we make to the transcript after that are post transcriptional because they happened after transcription. Okay. So here, since we excise these 26 bases from the transcript, that must have happened after transcription because that's how we got the transcript. So actually, C is supported by passage information, so we can get rid of C. Okay. Yeah. Um, and D, yeah, I mean, <laughs> it was a good guess here because... You don't know the amino acids, then you know how, how are you going to know? <laughs> how are you going to be able to verify that it's supported by passage information? Know but your amino acids. You're not. You have to know them. 
Uh, but yeah, actually, amino acids are a place where the test will just ask about them constantly. And even if the passage doesn't mention amino acids, they could still totally come up because one key fact you're supposed to know is that some amino acids are polar and others are nonpolar. And the polar ones tend to be found on the outsides of proteins, essentially like facing the cytosol. And the nonpolar ones tend to be found buried in the inside of proteins. And if we look at D, D is asking about the endoribonuclease domain of this protein. And if we go back to endoribonuclease domain, we see that it says it's in its cytosolic tail. So if the endoribonuclease domain is in the cytosolic tail, it's in the cytosol. Cytosol is polar. It's likely to have a lot of polar amino acids. And then we have to know that K and D are polar. L and F are nonpolar amino acids. And so D is saying this polar domain is more likely to be rich in these two polar amino acids than in these nonpolar ones. And that's totally true. There's like, you have to know for this question, like 10 different things to be able to answer it, it seems like. You have to know a lot of facts, um, but that happens with amino acids especially, because uh, for the MCAT, just knowing your amino acids and whether they're polar versus nonpolar and what their abbreviations are, that's all considered like base level information. Like that's information you 100% need to have uh, really as early as possible in your prep. And then everything else is sort of just piled on on top of that. <laughs> Okie dokie. Um, right. But so that one's out because that one's true. Um, C is out because it's true. It, they're both supported by passage information. And then the one that ends up actually being the right answer <laughs> is one that is easy to look over because it looks kind of normal, but it's B. So B was the one that talked about um, this cytosolic tail catalyzing the cleavage of bases one at a time from the end of the transcript. And if we go back to that second paragraph, we see that they're talking about it being an endonuclease. And endonucleases don't cleave from the end of a transcript. They cleave somewhere in the middle. Uh, it's exonucleases that actually cleave from the end of a transcript. Oh, so. Such a little word that <laughs> messed everything up. Oh, my God. <laughs> once, once you guys get to your AAMC practice, um, I always tell my students... Uh, just count how many times you see the names of proteins and enzymes and how many times it impacts your answer choice. It will be all the time. Endonuclease is an enzyme. Uh, yeah. My brain hurts. Yeah. Um, this last one's not, not so bad. Yeah, sure. Uh, <laughs> question 13. The unfolded proteins that accumulate in response to ER homeostatic disruption most likely... So endo endoplasmic reticulum, homeostatic disruption, most likely. A, exhibit disrupted tertiary structure due to a lack of proper covalent bond formation. B, exhibit disrupted secondary structure due to a lack of proper dis disulfide bond formation. C, exhibit disrupted secondary structure due to a lack of proper hydrophobic interactions. Or D, exhibit disrupted primary structure due to a lack of proper peptide bond formations. So this is looks like one of those pseudo uh, discrete saying, um, mm -hmm. wh why do we have unfolded proteins? What What is causing um, unfolded proteins? And so we'd have to know what helps keep proteins folded, um, it seems like, which formation. So hydrophobic peptide, 
covalent or disulfide. Um, and I don't remember my proteins unfolding. Uh, uh, I, I would go with D-peptide bond, but I forget. Um, peptide bond is tempting because it's in proteins. Yeah. Uh, we know they have peptide bonds, but peptide bonds aren't involved in folding. They're just involved in the primary structure of a protein, which is just like the linear sequence of amino acids. Okay. So that's why D, D says primary structure and primary structure is just that linear sequence. So we can get rid of D because it doesn't relate to folding. Okay. And then it has to be A, B, or C. And actually... Um, tertiary structure is talking about like high level protein folding, but secondary structure, which is in B and C, that's talking about protein folding too. So at this point, you're right. We do need to essentially use this type of bond to try to find our answer. And if we just start with C and work our way upwards, um, C says disrupted secondary structure due to a lack of proper hydrophobic interactions and hydrophobic interactions are totally involved in folding but they're involved in tertiary structure which is like that large scale folding they're actually not involved in secondary structure like secondary structure is like really basic repetitive folding uh, and secondary structure actually involves hydrogen bonds only okay so so b and c both talk about secondary structure but they talk about disulfide and hydrophobic interactions so since they don't talk about hydrogen bonds which are the actual bonds involved in secondary structure b and c are wrong Okay. So the right answer is A, because A says disrupted tertiary structure due to a lack of proper covalent bonds. And one of the key components of tertiary structure are disulfide bonds, which are a type of covalent bond. So A is just the only one here that accurately pairs this type of folding tertiary structure with the type of bond. Okay, so secondary structure, hydrogen, always? Always, like the only thing that holds together secondary structure is hydrogen bonds. Okay, so at least we got one takeaway from this this passage today: <laughs> secondary structure folding, hydrogen bonding. That's the only thing I'm taking away from this episode. Just remember that. <laughs> All right, that that that's good for one question on the MCAT. Yeah. Every question counts. All right, so there you have it. Bio Biochem Passage Three. I hope that was helpful for you. If you want to follow along at home, go to the mcatpodcast.com slash 121, where you can get the handouts for this episode. You can follow along at home. Don't do it while you're driving, only at home or, or, at, or at school. You can do that. Or if you exercise and use a recumbent bike, you can do that too as well. I hope you have a great week. But before we go, let's talk about Next Step Test Prep and how they can help you prepare for the MCAT. Go to nextsteptestprep.com. Use the promo code MCATPOD, that's all capital letters, M-C-A-T-P-O-D, to save 10% off their full links, $50 off their tutoring, and $50 off their MCAT course, which is a do-it-yourself, kind of do-it-at-your-own-pace course. But it's not like all the other courses. Next Step Test Prep includes live office hours. Live office hours. 10 hours a week of live office hours where you can go on and ask questions and other students will be there with you asking questions and you'll all learn together from one of Next Step's highly qualified tutors. They are helping students through the course, answering their questions, covering everything that you need to help you get the score that you need. 
to get into medical school. Again, that's nextsteptestprep.com. Use the promo code MCATPOD, M-C-A-T-P-O-D. Have a great week. We'll see you next time here on the MCAT Podcast.